these guys have your back if anything goes wrong and you want to make sure that you have theirs so it really makes you want to practice and get good at these skills and uh so that way if anything ever does happen you're able to to proficiently use them this is the adventure sports podcast where we talk to athletes adventurers and business owners from around the world of adventure sports whether you're climbing mount everest starting a bike shop or getting up off your couch to take your kids hiking for the first time we want you to have the motivation and inspiration you need to chase that next adventure the adventure sports podcast is brought to you by camp crate the leaders in fully planned self-guided backpacking adventures as well as backpacking gear rental you can check them out at campcrate.net Hey there, everyone. Uh, the country's still getting tons of snow all over the place, so ski season looks like it might be around for a little while longer than expected. And so we wanted to do this uh, replay, this avalanche uh, safety kind of guideline slash intro. Uh, this is by no means an extensive look at how how to watch for avalanches or or, or an education, but it's a start. And it's from a few years ago and just wanted to replay it and hope you learned something. Stay safe if you're going somewhere that's avalanche prone. So I hope you enjoy today's revisited episode. Uh, as a reminder, Thursdays are the revisited episode days. We have almost 500 episodes. So we have a lot that a lot of you probably haven't heard yet. So we like to pull from the past, bring them to to current for you to listen to, for, for new listeners to get into. Um, and then our brand new shows are always on Monday and Friday. Uh, today's episode is brought to us by Powder 7 Ski Shop out of Golden, Colorado. They sell new and used skis, bindings, everything. So you can get a really good deal there. Also brought to us by Peak Refuel backpacking food, um, and freeze-dried meals. Awesome food. Highly recommended. Use ASP20 for 20% off at checkout. Also, Hemp Daddy's CBD oil and transdermal cream. CBD is huge right now. If you want to give it a shot and try it out, get a hold of Hemp Daddy's. It was made for and by an ultra runner who wants to continue doing the sport as long as possible. So check them out. If you'd like to support us by being a, a supporter of the show each month, go to patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. There's all kinds of things that you get when you go in there. You uh, you get stickers, you get a shout out on the show, you get access to patron only content. We have episodes that are only for patrons, uh, tips and tricks and advice, as well as interviews, just like this show is typically. So check that out. And yeah. Enjoyed the episode and hope you had a pretty good week so far. Hi, welcome back to another episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is Travis. I've got a good one for you guys today. I thought we would break off of our normal routine and do a little bit of um, avalanche safety awareness. And on the line with me is Nolan Hurd. He's one of the guys who leads the uh, the BC 101 clinics down at Bentgate Mountaineering in Golden, Colorado. And you guys have heard that name because they've been a longtime sponsor of our show. So I thought maybe we would get Nolan on and uh, 
have him give us a little bit of a rundown, a high level of things we need to be aware of when we go out into the, the backcountry in the wintertime. So first of all, Nolan, welcome to the show. Hi, Travis. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm ready to learn. As I was telling you before the, the interview, that um, treat me as a noob because I really I don't have much in the way of avalanche knowledge. Um, it's something I need to do before I do set foot into the wilderness again. And we want to encourage people uh, after hearing this to uh, de- definitely go get some some further training and education. But let's get into the the high level stuff. Um, you know, without knowing what we need to know, um, let's dig into uh, to the highlights. So, first of all, before we get started on that, I want to do a little bit of a, a background on you. So, give us an idea of who you are, where you come from, what is it you do, what are your adventure uh, hobbies that you prefer. All right. Um... So I'm actually, I hail from the, uh, the great southern state of Texas originally, born and raised there. Um, but my parents have always loved to get me outside. So I got involved with the Boy Scouts at a really young age and learned a lot of first aid, how to be out in the backcountry safely, how to camp, set up a tent. And I came up to Colorado to go to school at the Colorado School of Mines. And within the first two weeks, went to a backcountry club meeting there and never heard of backcountry skiing before, had no idea what it was. And... Uh, a couple of the older guys offered to take me out in October, and I boot-packed up Jones Pass with a snowboard that I borrowed, and I fell in love immediately. And I've just, ever since then, have been taking classes, getting involved, um, started teaching. Uh, after a year in the backcountry, I started teaching and got involved with Friends of Broken Pass, got my level two, and then I've just continued to be really avid about backcountry safety and backcountry education because... It's such an important part of my life. I just want to make sure that other people are out there able to enjoy it as much as I am. Yeah, absolutely. That's admirable. So your for- first foray into snowboarding was in the backcountry. You hadn't tried it on ski resorts and, and groomed terrain? Um, I had, but it had been seven years prior. Um, it was the last time I had snowboarded. But very quickly, and no offense to any snowboarders out there, but very quickly I realized that for the sort of stuff I want to do in the backcountry, I skiing made more sense for me. And I was also with a bunch of skiers, so I learned I did end up actually learning to ski in the backcountry on Berthed Pass. And yeah, it was it was a heck of an experience. That was a very slow learning curve because you can't you just don't get as much vertical in in a day. So I it took a little while for me to figure out how to keep my feet underneath me, but I'd say I got a pretty good grasp on it now. Yeah, no doubt. Well, I imagine it's got to be kind of hard to to learn back there. I mean, when you're on groomed trails, you have you can expect uh, or know what to expect what's coming up. When you're on mm-hmm. in the backcountry, you have varying depths of powder and varying depths of of snow hardness and and other obstacles. So that's kind of a that's that's quite the crash course to to begin that way. Absolutely. And my friends weren't exactly the. Uh... They weren't too eager to just go ski the the or meadow skip, as we like to say. They were like, "Hey, let's go ski these steep trees. It'll be really fun." And I would fall down, get up, repeat process. Fall down, get up, repeat process. And you know, I just wanted to learn, and I just loved being out there so much that I refused to give up and refused to stop doing it. And now I'm sitting here telling people about how to go out in the backcountry and stay safe and have a good time. Right on. 
All right. So let's get into uh, the safety stuff. So as I alluded to, um, you lead some of the clinics uh, at Bentgate, and these are BC 101 clinics. They're free for people to stop by and check out, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So Absolutely. For all of you guys uh, living here on the Front Range, or maybe if you're uh, you're coming through Colorado, you might want to check out Bentgate. Um, I don't say that just because they're a sponsor, but they they offer some awesome services down there, and they're uh, they're a wealth of information. Um, so definitely worth checking out their site uh, and seeing what they have there. So um, one of the ones you lead is Avalanche Safety. So first of all, let's start out with what avalanches are. Um, I, I'm not trying to be stupid here, but there are certain terrains and certain weather conditions that cause avalanches. So what's the high level of an avalanche? What is it you want to kind of be on the lookout for? So without going into too much detail, I'm going to start off by saying, if you're listening to this and you're thinking about getting into the backcountry, you really need to take an area level one. Area is the American Institute of Avalanche Research and Education, and they do basically they are the the North American standard on avalanche safety and the what an avalanche is and how you can stay safe in avalanche terrain. So that's what I'm going to say first. Ways to get ease into the backcountry and get to get into your your first area level one class is you come to the BC 101s to learn about these sort of things about avalanche safety. And an avalanche, there's three, there's three main things in the avalanche triangle. It's snowpack, weather, and um, aspect. And then you are in the center of that triangle as the trigger. So you really have to take in, there's so many variables when dealing with avalanches that it's hard to sum it up into a really nice, clean, boom, you need to know these three things, and that's all you need to know. But at a high level, it is the avalanche triangle, like I said, of aspect, elevation, and so okay so go into uh, those a little bit i mean snowpack yeah. we're obviously you have to have quite a bit of snow to have an avalanche you're not going to have an avalanche with you know six inches of snow in the mountain um what are you looking for when it comes to snowpack what should be what you should you be aware of so what you were just saying isn't necessarily true if all you need six inches of snow will slide really? um yes okay if you say you're up in the the alpine on like a glacier or some sort of permanent snow field when you've got six inches of fresh snow uh that can absolutely slide uh early season it is very very easy for people to get caught because they're so excited be like oh there's like six inches of snow i can get out and hit this and you can get so you can get small avalanches that'll pull you because there's no base that they will drag you over the rocks and the grass and the trees that are that are buried so um any amount of snow can and will slide. So really important. But when you get into snowpack, basically what you're looking for is you're looking for strong, a strong slab over some sort of weak layer um, without getting into any more of the technical terms. That's the main thing at snowpack. When you have that, this strong over weak, as we like to call it, that is a huge part of what causes avalanches and will basically the weak layer will collapse and the strong layers or a slab will then uh, carry itself with its weight down the mountain and hopefully not have you in it. But people do like to get caught for some reason, unfortunately. <laughs> so, right. yeah, that is the, the big thing with snowpack 
and you can find out what's going on in the snowpack by reading your your local avalanche bulletin. Um, it's a, a great way to just when you're. I read the bulletin almost every day, and it's avalanche dot state dot co.us so this is yeah, the colorado US. avalanche information center which is a mm-hmm. an excellent site and and i only know that because i was researching before the show it's not like i'm a, a professional avalanche watcher <laughs> but okay so a good idea is obviously you go to uh colorado colorado avalanche information center uh where it gives you forecasts and avalanche information so that's a good call the one yeah. thing that threw me off with the the snowpack, and again, I'm I'm I don't know enough about this, which is great because you're going to educate me as well as uh, as a bunch of listeners, I'm sure. And I'll I'll ask all the stupid questions and look like the dumb one. Um, so the minimal information I have is I knew that avalanches would be caused by that weak layer, you know. So essentially, you have mm-hmm. a snowfall, and then that can kind of melt down and create a a granular layer or something on top. Uh, where another snowfall amount on top of it would create a situation where you have two layers that want to slide on each other. So I was a little surprised when you said that a six-inch base could actually slide because I would have thought, well, that's essentially that that layer is stuck to the ground and and clinging to rocks. But that's good information. I never, ever would have guessed that a six-inch base would have caused an issue. Yeah, that's where you get into um, looking at the actual what we call the bed surface of the avalanche and the bed surface is what the avalanche ends up actually sliding on. So that's why it's really cool to go out in the summer to the zones that you like to ski and look at, Oh, that's a bunch of of loose scree or that's a big grassy field or there's a ton of down logs there. So you can get an idea of like when it actually gets buried in the winter, what your base is bonded to and start to really get a better idea of how, the snowpack is going to behave based on its bed, its bed surface layer. So, yeah, that's why six inches of snow can slide. Will it always slide? No, but it can. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Good tip. All right. So what about weather? Um, what kind of conditions are make a, a prime avalanche conditions? So when dealing with weather, the rule of thumb that I like to say is the number one rule is snowpack does not like rapid change. Um Rapid change, meaning it starts out, you start at the trailhead, 30 minutes later, you're either putting on layers or taking off layers because it warmed up or cooled down. Um, Suddenly there's a lot of wind, and the wind is transporting a lot of snow and loading slopes. You can get into um, rain. It's snowing, and then it goes from snow to rain, and that's going to change the avalanche conditions. Um, There's a lot of changes in the weather and that's what you need to be aware of is thinking about what is the weather doing to my snowpack is is it getting rapidly warm or is it cooling very quickly am i getting a lot of snow transported by the wind or is the snow suddenly turning to rain like i was just saying and that all those things add weight to the snowpack which like i was saying earlier with that weak layer puts extra stress on that weak layer and makes it easier to trigger okay Makes a lot of sense. So it sounds like I would think that springtime is a big issue and times of real deep uh, winter cold up there are times that you want to watch. And it sounds like it's, it has more to do with what the weather has done in the past week, you know, maybe instead of the actual day that you're going out. Mm-hmm. Both. I would say both are very important is 
I definitely watch what the weather's been doing, mostly so I can get a gauge of the temperature, because um, that'll kind of tell me what's going on in those lower layers of the snowpack. Um, if you want to know more about that, that's a great time to go and take your area level two. They go in three. They really get into the snow science of how the crystals change relative to the uh, different sorts of temperatures and UV radiation that they're exposed to. But overall, you just want to make sure that you're paying attention to, to temperature trends so you can see if the slopes are getting more or less stable. Um, but winds, even while you're out there, can actually move so much snow um, that even while you're skiing, if you're skiing and it's it's snowing and you've got a strong crosswind, uh, wind can transport up to 10 times the amount of snow as is actually falling. So it may be snowing at you know a couple inches an hour, but you're getting 10 times that amount blown over this ridge into this goalie that is now becomes incredibly loaded while you're out there and can make it for a very um, unsafe avalanche condition. So okay. you got to have your head on a swivel the whole time you're out there. Yeah, I guess. I guess. You could definitely ca- uh, catch you off guard. So you were talking mm-hmm. about the avalanche triangle. Um, you mentioned snowpack, weather, and what was the third one? Uh, terrain. Terrain. Okay. So tell me a little bit about the terrain. Um, one of the tips you had was to go into the, the areas in the summer that you would wish to uh, or plan on going in the in the winter just to see how the terrain is is laid out. So what are you looking for in the terrain that might allow for avalanche conditions to be greater in one area than the other? So terrain, there's a couple good rules of thumb. There's one you want to look at, what is the actual angle of the slope I'm about to try to ski? Um, a lot of people have heard the you want to be stay under 30 degrees um, because under 30 degrees, most uh, slopes, most of the time are stable. Um, this even this this winter, the Teton Avalanche Center issued an advisory for slopes under 25 degrees because of a uh, their weak layer problem was so severe that we were even seeing stuff slide that low. But overall, 30 degrees and below, so like a blue run at a resort, are are fairly safe, but not always. And you have to then take into account what's above and below that. Um, 38 degrees is kind of your magic number. Um, that's where most avalanches occur and most slides occur. So really, really dangerous. Um, and then up to 45, you're still in pretty good avalanche danger. And then above 45, it's such a steep slope that it's the snow, it's just hard to get the snow to stick to it. And it, it just sloughs and releases naturally. And it's hard to get a big slab to build up. So 30 to 45 degrees is kind of your magic number of like, yeah, this is probably, this is an avalanche, big danger avalanche slope. The problem is, is that that 30 to 45 degree slope is the sort of slopes that we want to be skiing. Those <laughs> are your blacks, your double blacks. Yeah. That's the thing is that those are the fun slopes. So <clears throat> okay, slope's that's... a big one. I was going to say, that's interesting about the steeper slopes. I wouldn't have realized that, um, but it makes a lot of sense. So you're not building up layers that are basically sticking and under tension until they, they get released. These are just, these are, they, they basically let their, their tension go as the snow falls and they, they settle in without creating conditions. That's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why you'll see a lot of the, um, the roofs that are triangulated for the mountain houses are, are so steep is to prevent big uh, roof avalanches from occurring because if you have a uh, 
moderate slope on the on your roof. Uh, we have we had two guys in Colorado that got buried in a, a roof avalanche out in the backcountry, just at a, a trailhead, and their bodies were recovered a couple of days later, just because it it just naturally released on them and it buried them. Like avalanches are everywhere, and they are they do not care. Um, they will kill anyone. So uh, it's amazing the destructive power. I mean, just driving up mm-hmm. through the mountain passes and seeing these swaths of trees and rocks that have been wiped down to the bottom of the of the mountain because of an avalanche. It's just amazing the snow can do that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so that's slope angle. Um, and a big one that people forget on slope angle is I'm on a third. Like they'll you'll go I'm on a thirty degree or under slope. Like I'm pretty good, but they you don't look above you and realize, but there's a 45 degree slope that connects to this 30 degree slope or 28 degree slope. So while you may not be skiing the 45 degree slope, you're still very much in the slide path of another slope. So you really want to make sure that you're looking and getting the whole picture of where you're at is that even when you're traveling and, and traversing things in the backcountry, that you're not cutting underneath these steep slopes or um, traveling in a drainage that's got steep slopes above it, where you may be on a flat ground, but you're, you're on either side surrounded by these steeper avalanche prone slopes. Yeah. Um, so it's really important to keep your head on a swivel. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Get the overall picture. So yeah, like I said at the beginning of the episode, I used to carry cans of food into the backcountry, and uh, I know there's a lot lighter things to do, but uh, there's just a lot of options that aren't good for you or either too heavy, um, and that's why I really do uh, use Peak Refuel now. Um, they're a new backpacking food company, and I say backpacking food, really it's just uh freeze-dried food that you can use for anything i've actually eaten it for dinner before with my family uh because it's real food it's not it does not taste like backpacking food or hunting food or something that you're only going to eat in the backcountry it's it's delicious high uh in protein uh nutritious it is going to refuel you it is filling huge portions and i really encourage you all to give it a shot at least try it out uh, and that is peakrefuel.com. And if you want to get 20% off an order, uh, use the code ASP20. And that's capital ASP and then 20. Now back to the episode. Okay, so you mentioned roof avalanche. What the heck is a roof avalanche? A roof avalanche is an avalanche that falls off of the roof. Um, you've probably seen one before. It- I don't know, a ski resort. That's why you'll see the uh, the heaters on roofs and stuff. But yeah, they will add a bunch of snow, builds up on your roof, and then just will just release uh, kind of naturally as the sun hits it. And yeah, people have gotten caught. And, uh, those two gentlemen were unfortunate enough to just be out. I think they were hunting and it the roof released and had enough snow to bury them. And yeah, so it's something to be aware of. That avalanches really are everywhere. And, uh, now, when you're saying roof avalanche, I thought you're 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 making a connection to the roof of a building, but talking about a rock structure where the snow sloughs off. But you're actually talking about buildings. There was enough snow on top of a building, an actual roof, to bury these guys. Absolutely. Holy yeah. Cow. It <laughs> was an unfortunate event. Um, and yeah, no, you read, and that's. 
you've got to take this seriously and be aware of when you're in the backcountry, even the roofs of the latrines are trying to get you. Wow. So, That's crazy. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Okay. So we're through with roof avalanches. Let's talk about preparedness. Before you even go, we've talked about looking at the, uh, the Colorado Avalanche Information Center, or, you know, I'm sure there's other sites with information. Um, so you've looked at your site. What other steps do you need to take to be prepared to go into the backcountry where you have potential avalanche conditions? So um, there's a great program with that same name. It's called Know Before You Go. It was put together by a couple of the guys at the Utah Avalanche Center and some other contributors. Um, and basically, it's, it's this it answers this exact question. So the first thing is you get the gear. Before you go in the backcountry, you want to make sure that you have a beacon, a shovel, and a probe. Um, and you need to be proficient with it and know how to use it and practice with it. And that's something that we try and do and go over in the BC 101s. Um, the next thing you want to do is you want to get the training. Like I, I talked about right off the bat is you want to take that area level one and and start to get the knowledge to be out there safely. Um, then you want to get the forecast, which is the Colorado Avalanche Information Center or your local forecast, wherever you may be living. Um, and so those are kind of the three big things before you even go out there. And then four and five of know before you go is get the picture. So know what's going on in the snow, know what aspect you're on, what terrain you're on, like we just were talking about, what slopes are above you, what slopes are below you, where are you relative to the avalanche danger. And then five is get out of harm's way. Make sure that you're staying, um, staying, not exposing more than one person at a time to dangerous slopes. Don't stop in avalanche areas. Um, stay in contact with each other. But uh, to answer more of your question, the gear that you really need are, like I said again, we'll probably repeat, is you really need to get a beacon shovel probe, and you really need to practice with all that gear. Um, and it doesn't have to be this boring, arduous task. Uh, me and my ski partners, we'll get together, um, crack a couple beers, go out in the backyard, bury beacons, and we time each other. And we'll have a couple guys grilling, and we'll have just make a, when we're hanging out, just get out there and practice in our backyard. Um, we try and dedicate it one week in a month to actually go out and do real rescue scenarios. And we'll, when the snow's kind of meh and it hasn't snowed in a while, go out, bury some packs a meter or so down and practice rescuing them. Um, it's something you, backcountry skiing, you develop these bonds with your partners of knowing like these guys have your back if anything goes wrong and you want to make sure that you have theirs. So it really makes you want to practice and get good at these skills. And uh, so that way, if anything ever does happen, you're able to to proficiently use them. Um, and other gear that you need on a bit more on a lighter side is you need a good backpack. Uh, I strongly recommend a pack with an actual dedicated avalanche gear pocket where you can store your shovel and probe. And back panel access is always nice in the backcountry. So when you set your pack in the snow, you can open up the back panel and get everything you need without getting snow on your back. So when you put the pack back on, it like doesn't melt and get your drip down in your butt and make you get it. It's just not a pleasant experience. Um, and then you can start getting, you need to have layers. Layering in the backcountry is very different than the resort because you're moving most of the time. Uh, you don't spend a lot of time sitting around and, and waiting. So having a, some sort of pants with uh, ventilation or soft shell pants in Colorado are great. And then having multiple upper body layers uh, that you can 
throughout the day, changing it out of as it gets warmer and colder. So that way you're not sweating. Uh, it's very, very important. It's a skill that takes a while to develop along with all these other skills. Um, and so those would kind of be the main points that we cover in BC101s a lot of the time is, yeah, what sort of layers do I wear? What gear do I need? What pack do I need? And then, of course, what sort of boots, bindings, and skis do you want in the backcountry? The fun stuff. Okay, so yeah. talking about some of the equipment, um, obviously we all know what a shovel does. Let's just talk a little bit about the the beacon and the probe. So the probe, what do we use that for? So the probe is what you use after you have performed your beacon search and, and located basically your lowest signal point where you're like, okay, they, I think that they're going to be, this is as low as I can get. And then you pull the probe out and use it to basically shove into the snow until you either A, get a positive probe strike, which is you hit the victim and you go, oh, awesome. Or B, you hit ground and then you pull the probe back out, move it out in a, in a probing pattern and you repeat either until you repeat that process until you get a positive probe strike. Um, and when you do get that positive probe strike, it's very important that you actually leave the probe in the snow where the probe strike is. Um, you don't want to be like, oh, I found them, pull the probe out, and then you're left looking at, a, again, just a bunch of white snow going, uh, I thought it was there. So positive probe strike, leave your probe. And uh, the question I always get asked is, well, what if you poke them in the eye? Well, <laughs> it's the least of your concerns. <laughs> yeah, you're going to be pretty amped um, if you get poked in the eye and get dug out. So. Uh, great reason to buy a nice pair of goggles that are going to stay on your face well, I guess. But even then, an avalanche will probably tear them off. So, uh, yeah, you really want to – and you'll know when you get a probe strike to you. That's the other common question is how do I know when it's a positive probe strike? Um, humans tend to be squishier than uh, the ground, so you'll feel a difference. And if you're ever really curious, just poke one of your good friends with a probe, and you'll be like, Oh, okay, yeah, that's what a human feels like when you poke them with a probe. Um, same with a backpack. It's just, it's got some give to it where the ground and rocks and trees don't, so. Okay, that makes sense. And avoid his eyeballs. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now the beacon. I mean, obviously, it's a signaling device uh, that that alerts uh, somebody of your location when you're buried. So let's talk a little bit about it. Um, how is it triggered? How? What kind of a range do these have? Things like that. Yeah, so um, there's really two types of beacons out there, analog and digital. Um, analog beacons are, have kind of been phased out. They definitely have their place and their uses. But for your, if you're a someone who's just getting into the backcountry, you really want to stay away from those. Um, the new digital beacons are just so much more efficient at finding someone when when you don't have the uh, the time and uh, to actually invest in learning how to use an analog beacon properly. Um, and then digital beacons, you have one, two, and three antenna beacons. Most of your modern beacons are all going to be three antennas. And that, that what that does is it allows you to locate and find a signal um, more, reliable, more reliably and accurately than a two or one antenna beacon. So strongly recommend if you are currently using an old analog or two antenna beacon, considering upgrading to a new three antenna beacon. Uh, they are definitely, they work a lot better. And, you know, it keeps you alive if you ever do get, get buried or 
and it will keep your buddy alive if they ever get caught. So uh, I really think it's worth the investment for the uh, the amount of extra sensitivity and accuracy you get. Because when I do these these avalanche clinics and talks and practices, the two antenna beacons are start they struggle um, compared to compared to the three antennas. And I know that there's some probably somebody out there listening as a two antenna beacon who is incredibly proficient with it, and that's great. Um, but your average um, backcountry user just doesn't have that level of proficiency, and so the three antenna beacon really does help. Um, and with the beacons, they typically have they're really simple. They have off, they have transmit or send, and then a search mode. So when you get to the trailhead, you're going to turn your beacon on, put it into transmit, and go through a beacon check. But then basically your beacon will stay in transmit all day. Um, if you are ever caught, your beacon will still be in transmit, and your partner or partners will change their beacons to this search, this search function. And... A basic overview of how beacons work is they use flux lines, and a flux line is basically if you take an apple and you cut it in half, and that shape that you get where you've got the core and then it kind of goes up and around um, when you cut that apple in half, that's what a flux line looks like. Okay. And so the beacon follows that flux line in search mode um, until you find the low signal, and like we talked about with the probing, once you get your low signal, um, then you begin the probing process. Ah, okay. That makes sense now. So it's essentially a pattern that it's emitting. And because it's a, the shape of an apple, it's kind of ballooned out from the center. Um, the stronger the signal is, doesn't necessarily mean that's where the person is. It's actually where the signal trails off and then probably starts getting hotter again as you passed, you get past the, yes. the victim. Okay. So it'll actually read the, uh, the beacons are, will give you a display in, um, a number once you get a signal in meters and you there's arrows on the beacon um, screen that point to keep you to have you keep the flux line centered so you actually will go in this more of this that that apple core that apple shape then it's not a straight line to the low you're actually going to follow this flux line um, by using the, the the face of the beacon to walk you to your low Okay, that makes sense. Now, I didn't catch why a three antenna beacon would be better than a one or two antenna. Can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah. So, um, when when someone is buried in an avalanche, they're normally not buried in a a manner such that the the beacons couple well well with each other because you're not going to be buried like nice and flat parallel to the ground. Um, you're going to be buried in some configuration where your beacon may be pointed down, pointed up, pointed left, like just some in some orientation in space. Some crumpled And mess. what the three antenna beacon does is that you get um, a plane of each, a uh, flux line on each one of those planes. So with the two antenna beacon, you only get two planes um, that the antennas are transmitting on. With the three antenna, you now pick up a third plane okay. um, that it can transmit on. Uh, or axes that now when a beacon is searching for you, um, it also has three. And if it has three antennas, it can now also receive on three different planes. So you're going to get a much better um, coupling or reading on the, the searching beacon when looking for those three different planes. Cause now it can pick once it finds one of those planes, it's got a really strong signal and it'll work 
then it can couple well with that plane with its antenna and then bring you into the 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 um the beacon the buried beacon more accurately when you get into the two antennas you're just losing that like accuracy because you don't have as much it's just not transmitting as much data for the other beacon to find right right okay that makes sense it's almost like triangulation. I mean, it's not the same principle, but it's it's an analogy. You know, if you were to have, you know, three cell towers trying to triangulate yeah. you yeah. versus one or two, uh, you get just much, much better accuracy. Yeah. I get it. It's just better. Yeah. It's more stuff to read. Exactly. Yep. Okay, cool. Now I've seen, um, we were out at Outdoor Retailer recently in, in January, and there's a lot of, uh, a lot of avalanche balloon packs on display. Can you go into those a little bit and uh, what it is they do and, and how they're activated? Yeah. So um, avalanche airbags are, people like to think of them as a silver bullet. Um, and they work and they're great, but they're definitely not, they're not your silver bullet. They're not your, this is how I go out in avalanche terrain and I'm always safe. Um, it's like taking a, buying a car with a seatbelt and being like, well, I can drive this as fast as I want and hit whatever I want because I'm going to be totally fine. Um, that's just not how seatbelts work, and that's just not how avalanche airbags work. Um, the theory behind avalanche airbags is uh, based on what's called granule flow. So when an avalanche is moving, um, what happens is larger objects rise to the surface. Um, a lot of people in the avalanche industry, when they're teaching this, use what's called the Brazil nut theory to illustrate this. A Brazil nut, for those of you that don't know, is a one of the larger nuts that you can get in your mixed nuts cans. Um, but basically, take a can of mixed nuts, and if you shake it, the Brazil nuts, or the larger nuts, are going to rise to the surface of the can, and all the small nuts, or the broken up off pieces and the sediment, are going to go to the bottom. And that's very much how an avalanche behaves, and what an airbag tries to do is actually make you larger, so that way you stay closer to the surface and ideally on top. Um, there's been a couple of really good studies done on the airbags effectiveness and they show about 50% of people that would have died otherwise um, survived because of their airbag. Um, but the person that that's started that study does point out in the, in the actual study that, you know, it is biased towards, um, people that were using airbags that survived because that's what he was investigating. So he, he makes that point, but the theory is there and they, they work in certain terrain really well. And because in Colorado where we're skiing with trees, you have to worry about them getting punctured. Um, if you deploy them, because as soon as they get punctured, they don't work. So they work really well on medium sized avalanche terrain with a smooth run out. Um, and no real trees or rocks that they can get punctured on. And they work great in that terrain. Um, they work okay in trees, but it, it's really, you, you have to make the decision on what you're bringing into the backcountry based on what you're going to ski and based on what your, uh, what your objectives are for the day. So I have an airbag pack. I take it skiing with me some days, but most of the days I'm, I'm taking, um, just a standard, um, backcountry pack with an avalanche tool pocket to go ski things, uh, because airbags do change the way you think about risk. Um, right. and for me, it's not worth it to be like, oh, I have an airbag on. I'm fine if I ski this. Um, if anything happens, I'll just pull it. And when I first bought it, I caught myself using that mindset of being like, uh, 
I'm not sure. Oh, I've got my airbag. I'll be fine. Um, if anything happens, I'll just pull it. And for me, exposing myself to more risk because of a piece of gear wasn't worth um, carrying that. When I, If I just take a normal pack, I find myself to be more conservative in my decision making and get a better picture and really think about what I'm dropping into. Um, so it is a, it is a double-edged sword and people really need to be aware of that is when they, they're considering buying or investing in an airbag pack is, yeah, it's a great tool. It's an, an awesome tool, but you really need to think and be aware of like, is it going to make me more dangerous and more put myself out in these situations where I'm more likely to get hurt? And if that, your answer is yes to that, then you need to be like, okay, what can I do? to be aware of that and not put myself into these more dangerous situations because of this piece of gear. Right. That makes sense. Okay. So, well, continue on that. I guess I had another question. Um, so you said the word pull. So these are actually activated by the the person. They're not activated uh, on an accelerometer or anything like that. It's just, you have to manually activate it. Yeah. Um, so they all basically the two main airbags on the market right now, the way that they work is, you have a canister style and then a, a fan or a battery pack style. The canister styles um, use a canister of air that you manually pull and it inflates a bag. Um, the electric styles that Black Diamond and Arc'teryx make um, use a fan, an electric fan to actually inflate the bag. Uh, and the trade-offs there is that the fan ones, the electric ones are a lot more expensive but you can travel with them. You don't need to refill your canisters. You can practice with them. You can pull them off in your house as many times as you need to to get comfortable and really practice where's my trigger, how hard do I need to pull, um, what it feels like. You can practice skiing with them easily. Um, canisters are uh, you pull the airbag, the canister goes off, fills up the bag, and then you have to take it into a shop like Bentgate to get it refilled. Um, and it's like 20 to $30 depending on which airbag canister you're using, but those are the, the two main types. So yeah, you do actually have to pull them. Uh, ABS does make a system where someone else in your party can trigger your airbag. Um, and that's, that's another option then where you don't have to pull it. And it's great for a lot of guide companies. Uh, I feel like are moving that direction because it, it allows the guide to not have to worry about them practicing or remembering to pull it or, fumbling with the trigger it's they can just be like oh no and and hit the the deploy button for their client that is unfortunately caught in that in a avalanche but most guides are going to keep people out of that situation to begin with so right. it's it's a cool feature but i don't think it's it's going to be used as often but it's a nice peace of mind if you're guiding already okay I think I would want the one that was triggered by certain expletives. That's the one that would probably work the best for me. <laughs> you should work with uh, with GoPro on that. That's how their Hero 5 works. You're triggered by certain phrases. Nice. Not a bad idea. I like Not it. a bad idea at all, actually. <laughs> all right. You can you can take that one and run with it. Just give me a, give me a little bit of the proceeds. Yeah, yeah. I'll just send you an airbag. Perfect. I like it. So all of you know that uh, I deal with some chronic pain, some chronic inflammation in my knees, and it's been an issue with my adventure sports career. Uh, but we just had Caleb Simpson on the show to talk about his company, Hemp Daddies, and I'm actually going to give their products a shot and see how they do. 
I'm going to be using their CBD oil and transdermal cream. I've been trying it out about a week now, and I've actually noticed I sleep better. Um, my stress and anxiety have even lowered a little bit, as well as my knees do feel a lot better. Their products are third-party lab-tested. They're made from USDA organic hemp, and they're grown on a family farm right here in Colorado. If you'd like to give it a shot yourself, go to their website, hempdaddies.com, and use the code ADVENTURE to get 10% off your first order and free shipping. And I will keep you in the loop about how it does for me. So buying ski gear can be a pretty daunting process especially when it's online. But Powder 7 made that process incredibly easy. They live by their mantra, which is skiing for all, all for skiing, by being completely dedicated just to skiing and encouraging anyone and everyone to participate all year long. It really doesn't matter if you're looking for your first pair of skis or looking to round out your quiver. Uh, They have literally thousands of skis in stock, uh, new and used, so you can get a really good deal a team of ski experts to help you find the perfect ski for you. And they stock every brand you can imagine. And not only skis, but they have everything else you need, whether it's a helmet or goggles, apparel, boots, bindings, poles, literally everything. The only thing they really don't get you is a lift ticket. It's crazy. So you can visit them online at powder7.com or stop by their store there in Golden, Colorado. But make sure you give them a shot before trying anywhere else for your ski equipment. Now. Snow cave camping, I've done, and I've had the snow cave collapse on me while digging it out, which one teaches you a little bit about layers and and uh, and sugar snow and whatnot. But when it happened the first time, I was quite surprised by the weight of the snow, and it probably covered two thirds, three quarter of my body. It didn't even bury me fully, and I was really surprised at how much weight was actually on me when it happened, and so. That experience alone gave me just a tiniest little sampling of what being caught in an avalanche could be. I mean, obviously the magnitude is way, way bigger, but um, what I want to know is if you're caught in an avalanche and you're buried, what, what pos- not position, but what situation are you in? Can you even move? I mean, I've seen where where people have recommended taking a communication device or some sort of, uh, you know, insulating layer, you know, some sort of tarp that you could get to. But can you even get to to that kind of stuff while you're down in there? I don't know how packed in and dense the snow is. Any idea there? Yeah. So the reason we carry all this equipment, the Beacon Shovel Probe, and we talk about not getting caught, our avoidance, is because when an avalanche happens, there's a huge release of energy and the snow's tumbling down the mountain, reaching up to speeds of 70 to 100 miles an hour. Um, <clears throat> and when that thing stops, what happens is it's had all this heat built up and then it basically flash freezes. Really? And it sets up like, yeah. So it sets up like the, um, the plowed snow on the side of the road, how hard and just like impenetrable that is. Yeah. That's kind of what avalanche debris is like. So, when you're buried uh, or get caught and get buried, you can't move. Um, you might have a half a second after the avalanche stops moving before it truly sets up frozen to move a little. But, um, yeah, you're not going to be able to move and you're not going to be able to self-rescue yourself. And uh, That's why when you are skiing an avalanche train, uh, before you drop into a line, you want to make sure that you're wearing, that all your vents are, bu- are, are zipped up. You've got some sort of 
um, upper layer on. You're not just skiing in a, in a t-shirt or in, in, uh, in lightweight gloves. You want to be dressed kind of where if you get caught, you can help to delay the hypothermia. Now, that's not saying put on a puffy jacket and then a shell every time you ski, but um, you definitely want to have your outer layer totally zipped up and have some sort of protection from the snow contacting your skin if you were to get buried because, yeah, you are not going to be able to move uh, until your partner uh, digs you out. Okay. Yeah, I didn't think so. When I read certain things alluding to uh, <laughs> to being able to move around while under that snow, I thought, there's no way. Just feeling the, the snow of a snow cave on my back uh, pressing me into the, the ground, I can't imagine being in an avalanche would uh, would offer any kind of movement or flexibility. So, okay. I'm glad we cleared that one up. All right. I think one thing we didn't talk about... Um, as we survey the terrain and the weather conditions and, uh, you know, the, the weather that has, has happened leading up to our trip as well as the, the same day, one of the things we haven't really talked about is other people on the mountain. You know, our backcountry is, is getting fuller and fuller with people these days. And you might, uh, you might have everything under control yourself and have planned out everything and, and looked at weather conditions, but you can't control people that might be upslope from you. <laughs> You know, so I think that's uh, that's probably a good thing to talk about. Absolutely. And that is definitely in the uh, the professional community has started to become a bigger and bigger topic of conversation because it's starting to become such a big issue. Of, um, you're touring along and someone slope cuts above you. Um, just this last uh, Sunday, I was up on Quandary going up Crystal Coolar, taking some of my friends up, and we were boot packing up the Coolar. And about quarter of the way from the top, seven people get on top of the summit, rip their skins, and start skiing down on top of us. Um, so it's definitely becoming a, a bigger and bigger issue in the backcountry. And really, it, it comes down to the users understanding that your actions actually affect other people. Um, a lot of outdoor sports like rock climbing, or you might have to worry about dropping josh or um, trundling rocks under the party below you but really it's not that big of an issue it doesn't happen that often um mountain biking you're not that concerned about someone setting off something that's going to kill you uh ice climbing you can kind of you do need to be worried about it because they're going to rain ice down on top of you but backcountry skiing is one of the few sports where you're really having to be aware of okay if i cut across this or drop in i'm exposing myself and that party to the risk of, of an avalanche um, that's greater than what they were planning on. So it really comes down to being respectful in communication. And if you can establish communication with the other parties, that's awesome. Um, but that's sometimes pretty hard to do. Because um, a lot of times you're out there, and I know I'm guilty of this myself, but I am out there, I've got my objective, and I'm not, I don't want to interact and deal with with other people and be like, oh, what if we did this and have that conversation? It's just really hard when we get that powder fever to stop and be like, talk to someone without being really, really involved and ready to ski. And you do, you do just have to take the time and remind yourself, hey, it's safer for both the parties involved to be like, hey, what's your plan? What are you planning on skiing? What are you doing? Um, and just work out a plan. Okay, we're gonna ski it this way. Um, you guys ski it. You guys are gonna ski after us, or we're gonna all ski as a big group to the bottom because it's easier than having two parties try and navigate down 
and exposing multiple people to the risk at the at one time. So it really comes down to communication and you just need to be aware of don't cut above other people. Um, no, it's not safe for them. You, if you do set something off, it would, I, I, I would feel terrible if I buried someone in another party because I was being selfish and trying to beat them to the top and I cut across, I undercut this big slope above them and triggered something down on top of this party. Um, so be aware of the people below you, be aware of the people above you because they may not be as nice and you need to go, um, well, we were going to go up this way, but that party seems to be picking a line that, uh, an approach line that we don't agree with. So we're just going to have to change our plans and, and way loop around. So it's not a great answer. And, but that's kind of unfortunately where the community is at this time is we're trying to figure out what the etiquette is going to be for dealing with multiple parties in these super popular areas. Yeah. 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 It's not all about getting the the best line. Like you said, you're, you could be taking somebody else's life, uh, you know, in your own hands or, or you or your own party, you know, by making exactly. a decision to, to go ahead and enter an area that, that might, uh, might be avalanche prone because somebody is up above you. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I read that, uh, over 50% of people buried in an avalanche die. So the statistics are pretty staggering. This is not stuff you want to mess around with. Um, definitely education is, uh, is key before you even set uh foot one day out there. I can, I can yeah. get that for sure. Okay. All right. So let's talk a little bit about um, the the places that we were we were referring to to, to get some training. Um, for starters, I pointed people to bentgate.com slash BC101. That's where you guys lead those clinics. Uh, again, they're, they're free for people to stop in and ask a lot of questions. Basically what I'm doing on, on this show right now, ask a lot of questions and get a primer for the training. But also, as you alluded to, you need to go take those area courses um, from the American Institute of Avalanche Research and Education uh, and get get just get the, the full on training before even going out there. So and by no means, don't consider what you've heard on this show, uh, any kind of training at all. This is essentially to to get our audience familiar with with the avalanche conditions, what to know and basically to prime them to go get the real training uh, before they go out there. So um, let's talk a little bit about uh, the Friends of Birthed Pass. I know you're involved with them. Um, I know they offer some avalanche safety training as well. Yeah, so um, the BC-101s are literally come in and ask. It's a, it's a way for you to come in and ask any question you have about the backcountry, whether it's what do I wear, what skis do I need, like very all the way up to we'll go into ski mountaineering and what ice axe should I buy, what crampons do I use, and you know what sort of like techniques do I need to get in to do that. So like the BC 101s are very much based on your questions, like you were you were talking about. What Friends of Birth to Pass does is we provide an awareness course where we do uh, a bunch of these free talks and clinics around Denver. Um, the Denver area and the Front Range, Boulder, Colorado Springs, Golden. Um, I think we've got some classes in Vail even, um, but all over the Front Range where you can come in. It's about an hour to an hour and a half long PowerPoint, and we go over in a lot more detail what we're talking about right now. Of what is the avalanche triangle? What aspects uh, do we need to worry about? What sort of avalanches are there out there? Um, what sort of gear do you need? And so what a lot of people do 
is at the beginning of the season, they'll just come to that because if they've been in the backcountry for a couple seasons, it's a great refresher. Um, and it's also, we get a lot of people that are brand new or wanting to get at the backcountry. And it's like, well, I just, I don't know if I want to take my air yet. I don't know if I want to spend that money. Um, so they come out and they get a, they get to see this presentation uh, from a lot of very highly trained individuals and okay, help them make up their mind before they, they invest in a, in an area course. And uh, then what we do is we have our on the snow weekend, which is at birth and pass. And we basically, you come out uh, with your touring setup and we have people from their very first time ever touring. And I am cutting their skins in the parking lot and they're pulling tags off their beacon and putting in batteries all the way up to guys who skied in the backcountry for 20 years, took eight or nine years off because they moved away for work and now they're back. They want to get back into it and be reminded again before they go back and take their area or continue on their education. Um, and we'll go on a day tour and we'll take out uh, two or three instructors. We'll take out a group of five to six people around Birth and Pass and we'll talk about the snow. We'll talk about what aspect we're on, what elevation. We'll uh, make observations and really talk about terrain management and travel technique. Um, we'll practice uh, doing and a rescue and uh, then we'll ski some fun stuff. And so we really try to expose you um, to as much to what a day in the backcountry is like and also provide you some more education while doing it and get you really the goal is to get you primed and ready to take your your area level one. So when you go into your level one for the first time, it's not your first time out on skis and you can really focus on the information that the instructor is giving you rather than being overwhelmed. Um, by all these new terms and the new gear and oh I don't know if I can tour I've never skinned before now you're like okay I've skinned before I've got this like I can actually really focus and learn the material so <clears throat> oh, very cool so it's a good three-step process then I say go to bent gate uh, take a BC mm -hmm. 101 class then go visit the uh, friends of birth pass to uh, to do their uh, their intro to uh, Av safety uh, above that and then uh, go take your uh, your airy level one course and of course there's level two and level three after that so good advice for sure all right ma'am yeah. well i think this has been awesome you've taught me a ton and i hope you've taught the the listeners plenty um listeners if you guys are in colorado bent gate is an awesome resource they're a, a wealth of uh of knowledge go check out their their site there's a, a ton of stuff on there to uh to see and to learn about and of course, if you guys are in Golden, uh, please swing by and uh, thank them for coming on and uh, and telling us uh, about this, uh, about some stuff on avalanche safety. I want to have you guys back on uh, later on. I know you guys do more classes uh, in your BC 101 uh, courses in your clinics. You do peak skiing 101, you do weather forecasting, rock climbing techniques, ski board waxing clinics, and you also do uh, films and presentations from other adventures in the stores. So... Um, what a great opportunity to have you guys in the state. I really appreciate what you do. Yeah, um, we're very passionate about educating the community. And I actually started teaching the BC 101s before I even worked at Bentgate. Um, I just was really liked what they were doing and asked Greg, um, the owner of Bentgate, if I could help out. And he was like, sure, you want to teach them? And that's how I got involved there. So uh, it's an awesome place. We love to talk to you. I mean, if, and if you don't live in the front range and just want to give us a call and and uh, talk to us. We're more than happy to answer any of your questions or uh, talk about routes and stuff. So, Very cool. Thank Very you cool. so much for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. 
So go find these guys. Uh, you can find them on social media at, uh, at Facebook. You'll find them at Bentgate. In Instagram, you find them at Bentgate underscore Mountaineering. And Twitter is at Bentgate. So go check them out and uh, give them a yell. Ask them some questions if you plan on coming through the state. Or if you live in the state, uh, definitely go pay them a visit and tell them we sent you. So, All right, Nolan, I thank you very much for coming on and, uh, and teaching us a little bit about avalanche safety and encouraging people to go get further training. Yeah, no, thank you so much. I really, like I was saying, if you've never been in the backcountry, it is, if you hate lift lines and you love fresh powder, it is the place to go. Um, absolutely. You can't, there's no other way. I can't describe it. It's so amazing. Just all this, this talk is totally worth getting the education so you can go out there and really experience how much fun it is. Yeah, absolutely. All right, man. Well, cool. Well, you have a good evening. I appreciate it. And you as well. First of all, thank you so much for listening to the episode. Uh, secondly, if you would like to get in touch, you can leave us a voicemail at 812-MAIL-POD. You can also send us an email, info at adventuresportspodcast.com. Get a hold of us on Facebook, Instagram. Contact us on the website. Like, There's just a thousand ways to do it. If you know somebody that would make a good guest for the show, whether they're, whether it's you or somebody you know with a really cool story or background or does an interesting sport, get in touch. We'd love to have them on. Also, if you'd like to be a patron, a.k.a. a supporter of the show, patreon.com slash adventuresportspodcast. You can sign up for as little as a buck a month. You can sign up for five bucks a month. And lastly, thank you to our sponsors whose messages follow right now. If you want to save 20% off the best backpacking food on planet Earth, Go to peakrefuel.com and at checkout, use the code ASP20. Powder 7 is setting the bar for ski retailers everywhere with their personalized service, wide selection of skis, and gear. Visit them online at powder7.com or stop by their store in Golden, Colorado. Also, don't forget, if you're dealing with inflammation, pain, stress, anxiety, lack of sleep, check out HempDaddies.com for CBD oil and transdermal cream. And use the code ADVENTURE at checkout to save 10%.